But we need to be careful at the outset that we understand that for Paul, thus for us as his readers, love is not an abstract quality. I remember when I was younger, a child, perhaps a teenager, having someone say that love by its very nature cannot be defined. That, that love can't be defined. It's just this, this, this sort of this abstract feeling that you have. Well, that is not the case for Paul. For Paul, we have a concrete expression of love in the coming of Jesus Christ to die for the sins of his people. For Paul, love is not an idea. It is not a motivating factor behind behavior. It is behavior. To love is to act. And anything short of that, in fact, is not love. Paul begins his description of love with three conditional sentences, starting with tongues, because that seems to be the problem, expanding to gifts and then to self-sacrificial deeds. In each case, I think we can assume that Paul and the Corinthians agree that what he's talking about has value. So the issue is not the activity without love. Okay? The issue is the person himself or herself. These activities may be good. But what is not good is religious performance by one who is not acting in love. We will see this in verses 4 through 7. And I want to be clear that as Paul talks about it, it isn't simply a question of love or these activities. And it's not even these activities sort of motivated by love. It is these activities that are to be done by a person whose life is given to love. I think behind all this and implied in all this is the Corinthians view of what it means to be spiritual. To them, it is to be able to speak in tongues or to prophesy or to have knowledge. But they're not concerned about how you act. For Paul, to be spiritual is to have the spirit. And to have the spirit is to walk in love. One last thing before we jump in. And I think... We need to be clear that most people know 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the love chapter. And you hear it at weddings. I myself have used it as a text at weddings. Paul's not at a wedding. Okay, He's not speaking to people who are getting married. He's speaking to a congregation of Christians who apparently don't love each other, who are not acting in love. And he writes this chapter to correct that. And in chapter 14, he will get to the very specific uh, issues at hand. Let's read the first three verses as he describes, first of all, the necessity of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. The opening sentence to this chapter really sort of spells out the reason for this whole chapter, for this whole argument. If I speak with the tongues or the languages of men and of angels, I think we can safely assume that the Corinthians thought that they did speak with the tongues of men and of angels. 
If all we had, by the way, is chapter 13, we might think that what Paul is saying is, if I speak eloquently, that I not only speak with the tongues of men, but of angels. Oh, it's the voice of an angel that we're listening to. But we don't just have chapter 13, we have the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And what we've seen thus far is that the Corinthians think that they're like the angels. The resurrections happen, so they're like the angels. So uh, sex is not to be considered. Gender is not an issue. What language do angels speak? Well, we speak with the tongues of men and of angels. So Paul begins by saying, (coughs) this is what you think you do. You speak with the tongues of men and of angels. But if you do this and you don't have love, then something is wrong. What does Paul mean when he says, you do not have love, but have not love? He's not speaking as though love is something to be possessed. Rather, he is speaking of acting lovingly. In the next verse, in verse number two, Paul will talk about having the gift of prophecy, which means to speak with the prophetic gift. It's not simply a a possession that you have. To act lovingly is to seek the benefit of someone else. And Paul sees love defined supremely in what God has done for us. In that while we hated God, God loved us and sent his son for us. Thus to have love means to be, to act toward someone in the same way that God in Christ has acted toward us. And if we fail to do so, then we do not have love. Or as Paul says, we have not love. And the result is, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now some people see this, they see Paul as saying that one is only making noise. It's a hollow, empty sound. If you speak, if you think the Spirit is motivating you, you speak with languages that people can understand. Or if you speak in languages they can't understand, you're speaking the language of angels. Uh, then you're just making a bunch of noise. It is possible that's what Paul means, but I don't think it is. And as someone who grew up in a culture where gongs were the major instrument of music, uh, I think that gongs can make beautiful music. And so I don't think Paul is making an aesthetic statement about the quality of music, that, well, if you play gong music or cymbals, that's, that's really not music. I don't think he's saying that at all. What he's talking about is the music one would find in a pagan temple. If you go to Corinth in the first century and you go to a service in a pagan temple, what musical instruments would they have? They would have gongs and they would have cymbals. And Paul is saying, listen, you know, you guys, you think you're so spiritual that you can speak like angels with the tongues of angels. But you know what? If you don't have love, you might as well be a pagan. You might as well be a pagan in a pagan temple because you do not have love. What Paul tells the Corinthians in this first verse, in this first statement, is the person without love produces nothing of value. You produce nothing of value. I used to have a Latin teacher back in Baguio when I was a kid, and whenever he would ask questions and you'd give the wrong answer, he would say, oh, you're just wasting your saliva. Um... I always wondered what that meant. I think Paul is saying, listen, you're producing nothing of value. You're talking, it's nothing. The second statement is found in verse number two. And here he talks about three gifts, three gifts that he has mentioned in chapter 12. Prophecy, 
which we will see in chapter 14, Paul thinks to be the best gift. Knowledge, apparently this is a favorite of the Corinthians. And we're not quite sure, but we think that for them, knowledge was somehow to be able to see behind the scenes, to have a word of knowledge that God would, through the Spirit, sort of give you insight into a situation and you would have knowledge. And then faith is not simply a matter of believing, but of having great faith so that you could do miraculous things, that you could move mountains. And he qualifies all three of these with with alls. All mysteries, and together with all knowledge, means that you know what God is doing and why he's doing it. It's like, I understand. I can fathom all mysteries. I have all knowledge. And I have all faith that I could even move mountains. Paul says, listen, if you've got these three great gifts and you've got them in the fullest measure, but you don't have love, Paul says, I am nothing. The person without love is himself or herself of no value. So produces nothing of value, you are of no value in and of yourself. And then thirdly, in verse number three, Paul sort of broadens the perspective even further by giving examples of great self-sacrifice. If I give all I possess to the poor, and implied in this is that you sell everything you have to buy food to feed the poor. It isn't simply that you, know, you get out your TV and give it to some street person, but you sell it and you buy food so that people who don't have food have something to eat. This can't be a bad thing. It's got to be a good thing. It benefits the person who receives Josh read to us today from Acts 20, Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So, not only is the recipient benefited, but I am benefited as someone who gives. I am blessed because I am giving. But Paul says, if it is not characterized by love, it in fact does not benefit the person who is giving. He goes on to say that if I surrender my body to the flames, I mean, what could Paul mean by this? I mean, Apparently, he and the Corinthians understood what this meant, and they must have thought it was a good thing. Our first temptation is to think he's talking about being a martyr, being burned at the stake for the gospel. But this was not a practice. This is not something that had happened at that point. That would happen in the next decade when Nero would come along. This is not something that was going on then. We're pretty sure it's not martyrdom because you don't give yourself to be martyred. Your life is taken from you. I think what Paul has in mind is the idea of self-sacrifice. And he's not being literal, but he's thinking, you know when you go to the pagan temple and they burn a sacrifice? Okay. If you're willing to give your life in the same way, that you give your all, and you're willing even to be burned. But he says, you know what? If you don't have love, then you gain nothing. The person without love receives nothing of value. They produce nothing of value. They are in themselves of no value. And they gain no value. Well, that's not, that's not pleasant, is it? But Paul continues by describing to the Corinthians and to us what love is, the qualities of love. It's a wonderfully familiar passage as Paul uses 15 verbs, action words, to describe what love does more than what love is. 
These can be divided into three groups, two positive expressions, and then eight negative expressions, if you wish. And on the eighth one, there is a positive statement attached. And then four verbs that deal with always or all things. Let's read this passage and then we'll look at it. Verses four through seven. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Paul begins by describing love in terms of its responses to others. First of all, love is patient and love is kind. And these are two sides, I think, of the same coin. One is passive, if, if you wish. The other is active. Patient, that is more of a passive view. Kindness, which is more of an active view. The King James has for patient suffereth long. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, as Paul speaks of God's actions toward us, he mentions both aspects. Here, by patient, Paul is speaking of patience with people. Patience with circumstances, he will deal with later when he says that love always perseveres. Someone has defined patience as the ability to be wronged and wronged again and have the ability and power to retaliate, but never think of it. That's almost an impossible standard, isn't it? To be wronged and wronged again. And to have the ability and power to retaliate. And the third part is not to retaliate, but to never think of it. Boy, we think it's pretty amazing if someone has the ability to get revenge and they don't. We think, boy, what self-control. But patience doesn't even think. Oh, you know, I could get back at that person. In the pre-Christian world, and I would argue now in a post-Christian world, this is a uniquely Christian idea. To the Greeks, and the Corinthians were Greeks, patience was not considered a virtue, it was considered a weakness. Aristotle saw the great Greek virtue as the refusal to tolerate any insult or injury and a readiness to strike back at any hurt. That's what made you a Greek. You didn't put up with anything. You didn't take anything from anybody. You wouldn't tolerate it. You would strike back immediately. In our world, revenge is prized. If you have to wait, that's okay. And we think, oh, they're sort of patient. They're waiting. They're biding their time for revenge. No, but if you take revenge, then in fact you have not been patient. It is said that in the 19th century, the story is told of Robert Ingersoll, a famous atheist who would go around and publicly give talks saying that God did not exist. The story is told that on one occasion he said, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things I have said. 
Theodore Parker, a local minister, when he heard about this, said, And did the gentleman think he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? Well, some of us don't have five minutes, it seems like, on our timer. But love is patient. The flip side of the coin is that love is kind. It is the active side. If you wish, patience says, I'll take anything that so-and-so will throw at me. Kindness says, I will give anything to that person to help meet his or her need. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke the radical words of love. Words that we like to hear, but certainly fall short of, I think, in putting into practice. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Okay, maybe we can do that. What about do good to those who hate you? Paul would later write toward the end of his life to Titus, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. God, in patience and in kindness, provided salvation. So love is patient, it is kind. Well, thus far, the Corinthians are 0 for 2. They've not been marked by patience. They're going to court to settle differences, we see in chapter 6. They're not marked by kindness. We see this in the abuse of the Lord's Supper, where they put the poor outside to eat, and they themselves enjoy, those who are wealthy enjoy, a great meal. Boy, the Corinthians are in trouble. But perhaps today it is better for us to ask, How are we doing? How do we measure up to love? Paul now gives a series of things that love does not do. He begins by saying love does not envy. And the Corinthians now are 0 for 3. Because this is a word that Paul has used very specifically earlier in the letter. To speak of rivalry and strife. Some people have translated this word envy as jealous. There could be that. There are two kinds of envy, and I don't know if you're aware of this. I'm sure you are, but the first kind of envy that we usually associate is, I want what you have. That's envy. I I want what you have. The second kind of envy, I think, is a lot more subtle, but more prevalent than we might imagine. It, It says, I don't want you to have that. I think this is much behind what goes behind, this is the motivation behind vandalism. It's like, okay, I don't want what you have, but I don't want you to have it either. And the Old Testament is filled with stories. Cain and Abel, Sarah and Hagar, Joseph's brothers and Joseph. James would write about this in chapter 3. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every selfish practice. And is this not a statement on the Corinthians? Indeed it is. Paul says love does not boast. And I think this goes together with the next one. Love is not proud. See, boasting is the verbalizing of pride. And pride is the attitude behind boasting. But what about envy? 
Don't people boast because they wish to be envied? I think we both envy as well as seek to be envied. This is not love. When he says that love is not proud, it literally means love is not puffed up. And is this a Corinthian problem? In chapter 8, Paul begins by saying knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love is not rude. The King James has does not behave itself unseemly. It means to act shamefully or disgracefully. Have we seen this thus far? Chapter 11, women going to church dressed as men. Paul says this is a shame. This is disgraceful. What about the Lord's Supper? Where they have deliberately excluded certain people from sharing in the meal. Rudeness or bad manners is a way of saying, I don't care what affects you because I don't love you. So I really don't care if what I do affects you in a negative way. I will do what I want whether you like it or not. Rudeness is the failure to act with other people in mind. And as James says, it's chaos. The result is chaos. And as we'll see in the next chapter, that's exactly what their church services are. Purely chaos. And Paul says there needs to be some order here. Well, there needs to be love, because love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. It's not selfish. It's not self-centered. It doesn't make its own desires, its own good, the highest virtue. Paul wrote to the Galatians, carry each other's burdens. And in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? Love. Love is not easily angered. King James has, is not easily provoked. And here I think Paul is speaking of self-centered anger. An anger that wounds and injures and hurts and ultimately scars. Why do we get angry? Selfish anger, at least. Why do we get angry? Well, I would suggest it could be, I want my own way and I didn't get it. I want to be comfortable and my comfort has been disrupted. I want to look good and I fear that I have been made to look bad because of what someone has done. Therefore, I'm angry. Easily angered. Because I didn't get my own way. Again, to refer to James. You remember what he wrote? My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James is saying in a different way, we are to love one another. Love keeps no record of wrong. Literally, to keep a mathematical calculation, a running record, written down in a book somewhere, all the things somebody has done against you. I think sometimes it is easier to forgive than it is to forget. But love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Two sides of the same reality does not appreciate, does not like evil, improper behavior, but truth, living the truth as it has been taught. Because without truth, there is no standard by which we can measure behavior. And in a postmodern world, I think people are slowly waking up to that fact. If there are no standards, if there is no truth, 
then how can you say to someone, hey, that's wrong? Well, you can't because you have no truth. But love rejoices with the truth. Then the third part here, he says love always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. It always protects. This means to cover with silence, to suppress. Out of respect and honest concern for the other person, we will do anything to cover, to suppress the sin of that person. Think of the story of Joseph and Mary as we come on Advent and the Christmas season. Joseph is engaged. He finds out his fiancée is pregnant. Would not one feel betrayed? One would, would not one become angry? I, I thought I knew you. I thought I knew you. And this is what you do? You make me look foolish in front of the community? Oh, look at Joseph. Do you hear about his fiance? No. What does Joseph want to do? He doesn't want to make her an example. He doesn't want to make her a scandal. He wants to divorce her privately so that she will not be humiliated in the eyes of the community. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about her. Love always protects. In Proverbs we read, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. In Matthew 18, when Jesus talks about somebody sinning against you, what is the first step that you do? Tell it to the church? No. Tell it to the elders? No. You go to that person privately. You protect that person's reputation. They may have done something terrible against you, but because you love them, you don't want to broadcast it to everyone. Love always trusts. It always believes the best about someone else. It sees the weakness, it throws a cloak over it, and then it believes the best. It is not cynical. It is not suspicious. Like, oh, okay, this is where we get to the, like, the lovey-dovey part. I mean, this, doesn't this sound really sort of naive to think that you would always trust, you would always believe the best about someone? Isn't this just a form of self-deception? Isn't a person like this living in denial? No, because as God's people, we are always to believe in the grace of God. And love chooses to believe that the grace of God can and will change that person. Love looks beyond that person to the grace of God and what God can do in that person's life. Well, what if you believe the best and the person doesn't change? Then what? Well, the next statement Love always hopes. Because when you run out of trust and you run out of faith, there is still hope. What if you run out of hope? Well, there is always love. And as we see at the end of the chapter, faith, hope, love, the greatest is love. Because you may run out of faith or trust in that person or hope, but we're always to have love. Love is optimistic. It refuses to take failure as fatal and final. It is the story of the father of the prodigal son, whose son takes half of what he has and goes away, and the father waits and looks and looks. And when the son comes, 
I mean, isn't this, you know, we know the prodigal, the story of the prodigal son, but think about it. Isn't this a perfect opportunity to say, I told you so? Oh, look who comes crawling back. No, the father's in love runs out. He always hopes. And it always perseveres and endures all things. This is not, by the way, referring to minor annoyances, okay? It's talking about incredible opposition. And it's not a passive, okay, I'll just take it, but an active enduring. How does Paul describe God's love? I think one of the classic passages in Romans chapter 8. He says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. God's love perseveres. Now we come to the last part of chapter 13. And here Paul speaks of the permanence of love. It is not only necessary, it not only has certain qualities, it is to be permanent. Let's read verses 8 through 13. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. In this section, Paul is trying to make the point that gifts, while they are valuable, are temporary. They will pass away. They don't belong to the future. They belong only to the present. He begins by saying love never fails. And one could make a case that this is actually one of the qualities that should go in the previous section. But I think it could also, and this is how I see it, serve as a foundation for the rest of this section. In this chapter, and I've said this, but just to refresh your memory, Paul is not contrasting love versus the gifts, you know, prophecy, tongues, knowledge. He isn't saying, okay, either be a person of love or be a person of the gifts. Rather, what he is saying is these gifts must be done in the context of love. Now he tells us something that he hasn't told us before, and that is, while love never fails, these gifts ultimately will pass away. They will cease, they will be stilled, they will pass away. The gifts are not wrong, they're simply temporary. Paul focuses on the same three gifts that he did at the beginning of the chapter. First is prophecies, this is Paul's preference. The second two, tongues and knowledge, this is the Corinthians, these are what they like. But all are temporary, all are partial, because we know in part, we prophesy in part. They are elementary or instructional, they are here to teach us. How are they temporary? Well, prophecies will cease, tongues will be stilled, knowledge will pass away. Just a grammatical note for your information. The verbs for prophecies and knowledge are passive. That is, they will cease. They will be caused to cease. Knowledge will be caused to pass away. But the verb for tongues is in the middle voice. In English, we don't have middle voice. We have active, we have passive. Greek has a middle voice. That is something that you do to yourself, when you act upon yourself. 
And the verb for tongues, they will be stilled, is literally, they will cause themselves to be stilled. Something else will cause knowledge to cease. Something else will cause uh, prophecies, uh, knowledge to pass away and prophecies to cease. Tongues will cause themselves to cease. Well, what causes prophecies to pass away or to cease and knowledge to pass away? Perfection, when perfection comes. So they are temporary. Secondly, they are partial. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Without question, I think this is the key verse to this section, because the big question is, what is perfection? I think the King James has, when that which is perfect has come. Okay, what is perfection? There are different opinions, and some have suggested he's speaking of love. Paul says that when you love as you should, then the gifts will no longer be necessary. Well, no, that's not what Paul is saying, because he's already told us the Spirit gives gifts for the common good. Okay, not as a stopgap. And secondly, when will any human being love as he or she should? Never. Not until we get to heaven. So to say, well, when, perfect, when you have perfect love, the gifts are gone. No, because that's not going to happen in this life. Some people think that he's talking about the Bible. When the Bible is finished, when the New Testament is finished, we have the complete Bible versus partial gifts. We no longer need the gifts. I don't think this is what Paul is talking about either. And we can talk about this later if you wish. I think what Paul is speaking of here is the end of time, the second coming when Christ returns. Because then I shall know fully, even as I am known. There, love will be practiced. When Christ returns, we will no longer need prophecies. We will no longer need knowledge because we will be in perfection itself. In heaven, we will know as we are known. Here, it's always partial. It's, we know in part. Paul uses the analogy of childhood. And interestingly, they match up with the three gifts he's talking about. I talked as a child. Speaking of tongues, I thought as a child, knowledge. I reasoned as a child, prophecy. But when I become an adult, I put those away. And when do we become adults? When Christ returns. In this life, though, it's always partial. In this life, in many ways, we are always children. Talking, thinking, reasoning. In part, not knowing as we should know. It's always imperfect, always incomplete, always immature. In this life, we have the gifts, and thank God that we do, because they are instructive, they teach us. But let's understand something. These are to be practiced in something that is eternal, something that is far more valuable, the most excellent way, and that is love. In heaven, we shall see face to face. Here we only see sort of not a great reflection. It's, it's an analogy that really works for the Corinthians because Corinth, and during Paul's time, was world famous for its mirrors. But not of the quality of mirrors that we have today. They would get metal and they would shine it and they would uh, polish it and then you would see a reflection. But it would not be a good reflection, a poor reflection. And Paul says, yeah, that's the way it is right now. But when we get to heaven, it'll be like somebody turned on the lights, and then we will know as we are known.
then we'll no longer have the need for the gifts. But we're not there yet. We are here. This is now. How are we supposed to act? What we find now is love, along with faith and hope. But of these three, love is the greatest. Faith is important. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is important. Hope does not make us ashamed, we are told. So these, these two are important. Why is love more important than the other two? Some have suggested it's because when we get to heaven, we will no longer have faith. And we will no longer have hope. Why would you need to have faith? You'll be there. You'll see with your own eyes. And you don't hope for something once you have it. So once we get to heaven, no more faith, no more hope. We'll have love. I think that is true, but I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. What is Paul saying here? Why is love more important than faith and hope? Because you can have faith and you can have hope without love. But if you have love, you will have faith and you will have hope. Because love always trusts, love always hopes. And so what we as God's people should focus on is having love. Do you remember what Jesus said on the last night uh, before his crucifixion? It's recorded in John 13. He made an astounding statement. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. It's not because we dress a particular way. It's not because we walk around proclaiming that we are God's people. People will know that we are God's people because of the love we have for one another. Well, now we come to the end of this. How did the Corinthians measure up? Well, I think we have a pretty good idea. It seems that Paul has sort of picked at every single flaw that we see in the Corinthian church. But that's the wrong question to ask now at the end of the sermon. The question is, how do I measure up? Are these qualities of love present in my life? Am I a person of love? And we might think, well, well, yes. I mean, here at the church on Melrose, we love each other. I mean, and Paul's talking about congregational, you know, the church and, and love, and, and we love one another. But wait a minute. Do you think that Paul is only speaking of love in the context of the congregation? That as soon as we step out of this building, we turn that off? And we act a different way toward the world? No. People of love are not only people of love toward God's people, but toward others. Oh. So the love is patient, love is kind, is not rude. That means in my dealings with other people as well? Yes. As I said, this is a favorite passage at weddings, when we're sort of caught up with, with the romance of the moment. Paul's not at a wedding. He's living his life as we are, day by day. And the way we are to live our lives, the most excellent way, is to be the way of love.
It is to mark the way that we act, the way that we live. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this chapter, and it is a wonderful chapter and a favorite of so many. But it gets really uncomfortable once we begin to break it apart and to see what Paul is really saying. We are to be known by our love, but I fear that would not be the case. Apart from your spirit, we cannot be people of love, but we thank you for the gift of your spirit. May we in the days to come as we think about these things, not merely think about them, but put them into practice and be men and women of love. Not only toward one another, not only toward those who are nice to us, but in the words of Jesus, that we would love our enemies. That we would do good to those who hate us. I do ask that in the days to come, we would meditate on these things. Now, I ask that your grace and spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.